Um, so today, um, I kind of had some time to work on my um, sermon. Steve kind of gave us a few months heads up on doing these sermons, so I've been working on it for a while. And um, just the topic that I chose is um, saved by grace through faith. So we're going to talk about, um, you know, what is faith? How does it work? Where does it come from? And then also talk about how works fits into all this too. So starting out, um, many favorites, uh, let me start over. <laughs> many famous movies make reference to faith. The great philosopher Peter Pan tells us, all it takes is faith and trust and a little bit of pixie dust. <laughs> Miracle on 34th Street says, faith is believing in things when common sense tells us not to. Darth Vader famously said, I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> so what is faith? Webster's Dictionary defines faith as a noun, meaning allegiance to duty or a person, belief, trust in, and loyalty to God, or a firm belief in something which there is no proof. In a worldly sense, where can we most easily place our faith? We can choose to put, put our faith in what we can see. People, money, works, government, families, relationships. We doubt what we can't see and fear what we can't control. So where do we, as Christians, place our faith? Do we place our faith in something for which there is no proof? Of course not. We have the Bible as proof of God's existence and plan. Hebrews 11 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, we understand that the words were prepared by the word of God. So what is seen is, was not made out of things which are visible. So where does this faith come from? What does it do? How does it work? Before we dig into these important questions, Let's examine the expectations God has on our lives and behaviors. During the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:48, it records Jesus telling the crowds, "Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Bible commentator David Guzik, who has a great free online commentary for anybody who's interested, he provides some insight into this verse. If a man could keep just what Jesus said here, he would truly have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, the very thing we must have to enter the kingdom of God. But there is only one man who has lived like this, Jesus Christ. What about the rest of us? Are we left out of the kingdom of God? These questions posed by Guzik conjure thoughts of Deuteronomy, where Moses is laying out God's commands to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 27:26 reads, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. The Apostle Paul further clarifies this verse in the New Testament in Galatians 3.10, where he writes, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So this seems pretty straightforward. God expects perfection. And that sounds like a problem. If we can't be perfect, where does that leave us? Well, according to the Bible, it leaves us cursed. Thankfully, God has provided a way. One commentary states, though this standard can never be perfectly met by man himself, a person who by faith trusts in God enjoys his righteousness being reproduced in his life. We can't make ourselves perfect. No matter how hard we try, we will always come up short of God's perfection. Even if we could somehow perfectly follow the law, Hebrews 7.19 tells us, the law made nothing perfect. So now what? Where does that leave us? The writer of Hebrews continues, 
there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus is that better hope. It is brought to us by God himself, not by anything we do or in response to anything we've done. Thankfully, God is the one who bestows this righteousness in our lives when we place our faith in him. Hebrews 11.16 takes this a bit further. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We need faith to please God. We must believe in him. So where does that faith come from? Well, Paul gives us a couple explanations in the book of Romans. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Two chapters later in Romans 12.13, Paul says, God has allowed to each a measure of faith. Faith comes from hearing God's word and is a provision. Both the Old and New Testaments speak of God's provision of faith, grace, and righteousness. For two years, we have learned much from the book of Psalms from Pastor Steve. <laughs> Many of the Psalms are written by David, who God called the man after his own heart. In Psalm 3.8, David says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. David tells us that salvation is the Lord's. It is his to pour out on his people as a blessing. The Apostle Paul, in the first chapter of his letter to the church at Philippi, speaks of the source of their faith and righteousness. Verse 29 reads, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul clearly tells the Philippians and us that our faith has been granted to us by God. Just a few verses later in Philippians 3.9, Paul explains the relationship between faith and righteousness. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Peter echoes Paul's teachings in 2 Peter 1.1, where he writes, To those who the, through the righteousness of God our, and our Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. This faith was obtained, not by our own efforts, but by the righteousness of God. So this is basically saying that righteousness comes from God. It does not come from within us and is not created by obeying a set of rules. God grants righteousness to us through our faith in Christ. Colossians 1.12 instructs us to give thanks to the Father who, quote, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It is the Father who qualifies us, not our own works. We gain this as an inheritance instead of earning it as a wage. Our individual level of faith is not something which we should brag about or use to place ourselves above, above other believers. It is not something we created. It has been allotted to each one of us by God. So now that we understand the source of our faith, it be the question becomes, what does faith do? <clears throat> Let us turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We'll dig into Paul's letters to the Ephesians, Romans, and Galatians where he teaches faith and grace given by God. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When we sin, we're dead. Sins, of the deeds of the sins are deeds of the flesh and separate us from God. As Paul says in Romans 8.13, 
If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. God's punishment for sin is death. Continuing in verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. <clears throat> Paul's use of formerly walked indicates that he is speaking to believers here, showcasing their previous lifestyles and actions. Living our lives in sin is living according to the standards of the world, ignoring or rejecting the standards of God. Paul places himself among all the believers who formerly lived in sin, later calling himself the foremost of all sinners when writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul could fully relate to a life, to living a life of sin. Continuing in verse 4, it begins, But God. But God, that's an important transition. As Paul just explained, we are completely inadequate. And, but God isn't. God himself is going to step in and provide from himself what we could never do ourselves. Let's see what Paul continues to say. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the middle of our rebellion and sin against God, God loved us and sought to bestow his grace on us. Nothing we do affects the mercy and grace of God. His mercy and grace never changes. Lamentations 3.22 tells us, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. By his own grace, God saved us. We know we didn't deserve this or earn this, so why did he do it? Verse 7 tells us, so in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. So God did this for his own glory. He is putting the greatness of his grace on full display for all eternity in the form of Jesus and his redemption. Continuing in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Saved by grace through faith. This is a gift from God, not a result of anything we have done or could ever do. We have nothing to boast about about this salvation. It is God's doing, not our own. A little later, we'll discuss the good works God has prepared for us to do, Revisiting verse 10 in this context. Next, let's look at what Paul says in Romans, starting in chapter 3, verse 21. In this letter to the church in Rome, Paul provides further comments regarding our sin and its relationship to God's expectations. So Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested by being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Genesis chapter 6 bears the heading, The Corruption of Mankind. In verse 11 it reads, God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. All flesh was corrupt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Putting this passage into context, this is just before God spoke to Noah and told him he was about to destroy the earth. Now, someone might argue, well, that only applies to those evil and corrupt people before the flood. However, evil and sin were not deterred by the flood and resumed their their path of destruction soon afterward. If we move forward about 1,500 years to the time of David, we'll see that David repeatedly comments repeatedly comment on the Psalms, on the, in the Psalms on the sin and corruption of man. Let's look at a couple of these. In Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, it bo- they both read, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Not only did, God, did David say these things in reference to fools and godless people, he also applies it to himself in Psalm 143 in verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give, my ear, give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness and in your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, no man living is righteous. David recognized all people are sinful and unrighteous. He understood that only God is righteous. If we look back at Jesus' statement in Matthew 5.48, we discussed at the beginning of this sermon, God's standard for us is to be perfect like him. Both David and Paul say that happens with no one. How can this be overcome? Paul continues in verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justified here means declared righteous, which would be acquitted, vindicated, or freed. One commentator explains justification as a legal concept. The person who is justified is the one who gets the verdict in a court of law. Used in a religious sense, it means the getting of a favorable verdict on Judgment Day. Continuing in verse 27, Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, by a law of faith, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh states, The bad news of universal condemnation is overshadowed by the good news of a righteousness of God provided to all who believe in Jesus Christ. What man cannot do by his own efforts, God has done in the person and work of his Son, Jesus Christ. His death appeased the righteous anger of God toward the sinner. 
His death and resurrection provide the righteousness which men need to be declared righteous by God. Faith in Jesus Christ makes men righteous without law-keeping. Now, let's move over to Galatians chapter 2. In this chapter, Paul is addressing what occurred when he went to Jerusalem and met with the other apostles. So we're in Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 15. And it reads, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Paul is contrasting the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews had a written law from God to guide them towards righteous living, but the Gentiles did not. Verse 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Paul again states that the law does not justify, it does not save. The law reveals sin, it does not cure it, and it does not cleanse the heart. We are justified by our faith in Christ, who will cleanse our hearts and truly forgive us our sins when we repent and place our faith in him. Any work we do for Christ is good, but it does not save. Continuing in verse 17, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Paul is telling Jewish believers that they cannot return to following the law to receive righteousness if they have already put their saving faith in Christ. Doing so would be saying that Christ isn't enough, and we need the law to cover us too. Christ is fully sufficient. His death and resurrections accomplished what the law or works can never do. Continuing in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. We no longer live for ourselves when we put our faith in the one who loves us and gave his life for us. He is the one who saves. There is no other way. Christ died in our place. Following a set of rules cannot accomplish what Christ has already done. And finishing in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If righteousness came through the law, there would be no need for Christ to come and die for our sins, which would make the whole of Christianity worthless. One pastor said, Those who insist they can earn salvation by their own efforts undermine the foundation of Christianity and render unnecessary the death of Christ. We need salvation from Christ. We cannot do it on our own. Even many figures from the Old Testament recognize this. So although salvation by faith is largely seen as a New Testament development with the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Old Testament aligns with this truth. Let's start by looking at Isaiah chapter 12. Giving some context to this chapter, the prophet Isaiah, after speaking of the coming Messiah, expressed praise and thanksgiving to God recognizing him for his salvation. 
So Isaiah chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah also directly quotes God in chapter 45, where God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. God is the source of salvation for all people on earth. We will be justified and have glory when we place our faith in him. The Psalms also speak of redemption. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 8 reads, No man by any means can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. What the psalm is saying here is that we cannot redeem ourselves or others. We shouldn't even try, otherwise we will be trying forever, never succeeding. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2 read, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David tells us forgiveness and salvation are a blessing from God. Paul references this verse in Romans 4, verses 4 through 6, when speaking of justification. Now the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but is what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. We are not doing work to God to, to receive a payment. It is God who justifies us and credits us with righteousness, but for having faith in him. David recognized this. 400 years after David, God spoke to the prophet, prophet Habakkuk about the impending Babylonian takeover and reminded him in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will be preserved through everything, through faithfulness to God. This short verse in Habakkuk, only three words long in the original Hebrew, was quoted by Paul in his letters to the Romans and Galatians as biblical support while explaining justification by faith. The ultimate example of Old Testament faith is found in Genesis 12, which we'll turn to now. Putting this chapter into context, this is the moment where God calls Abram. So starting in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in, all the, in, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. So here, Abram follows God's instructions, going out into a foreign land. God continued to bless him and show him the land that his descendants would soon inhabit. Moving over to Genesis 15, we see Abram ask God who would receive these blessings since he had no descendants. In this passage, God responds and Abraham receives. 
So in chapter 15, starting in verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir to my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him out and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram believed what God told him, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abram did nothing to receive this righteousness. It's a one-sided transaction where God took his own righteousness and credited it to Abram. Why? Because Abram believed in God. Paul quotes this passage in Romans 4, 1 through 5, clarifying that Abram did nothing to earn this righteousness other than believing in God. So in Romans 4, starting in verse 1, it reads, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. God didn't owe Abraham anything. God was bestowing his righteousness upon Abram completely based on his belief in him. That same blessing applies to us who hear the word of God and believe it. So looking over to the New Testament and looking at examples of being saved by faith, two of the best examples of being saved by faith are found in the Gospel of Luke. Let's first look at Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. This is Jesus speaking to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous on their own. So Luke 18, starting in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes for all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee was proud and based all his perceived righteousness on his outward works of, of obeying the law. He felt he had earned a place with God and that God blessed him because of what he did. Conversely, the tax collector was humble, recognized himself as a sinner, and understood he couldn't save himself. Only God had the power to mercifully save him from the depths of his sin. Jesus clearly states the tax collector was justified at that moment. 
not by any works that he had done, but because he had humbled himself and placed his faith in God. Now let's flip over to Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39. Giving some context to this, this is where Jesus has been crucified along with the two criminals on his left and right. So starting in verse 39, it reads, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the, others, the other answered, rebuking him, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come to your, in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So one of the criminals, whose crimes were on the level to be sentenced to death by crucifixion, placed his faith in Christ at the very last moment of his life. He was, called, he was an unrepentant sinner until the moment he recognized the power of Jesus. He called out to Jesus asking for eternal salvation, and Jesus gave it to him in that moment. There was no opportunity for this man to carry out any kind of good works or earn his way into heaven. Jesus saw his faith and placed righteousness upon him, securing him a place in heaven for eternity. Flipping forward to Acts chapter 13, This is where we find Paul speaking to the Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath in Pisidian Antioch. So we're going to be starting in verse 38 in chapter 13. And it says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed by Jesus and is only found in him. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are freed from all things, something the law could never do. Paul's message here was rejected by the Jews, but the Gentiles rejoiced in hearing it. This is the same city where Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet in protest against the Jews as they left, condemning them from not accepting the work of Jesus. Peter also provides a great summation of where our salvation comes from in Acts chapter 4. He is speaking directly to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem after he and John were arrested for preaching about Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 reads, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation only comes through Jesus. There is no other way. He has been given by God as the way we must be saved. So now that we've talked about seeing how faith saves us, and both in the Old and New Testaments talking about this, how do we handle the second chapter of James, where James speaks about the need of works for salvation? Let's look at that passage together. So we'll be moving over to James chapter 2, a little bit further to the right. And we'll be starting in verse 14. <clears throat> what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, is one you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Believing in God is the core part of Christian life. When we recognize who God is and what Jesus has done, it's not the end of our journey. Instead, it's only the beginning. Just believing in God and doing nothing else with our lives isn't enough. Even demons believe in God, which is seen in Luke 8.28, when a demon-possessed man fell before Jesus and cried out, What business do, you, do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Let's continue in verse 21 of James 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. When James says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac, he is saying that Abraham's offering of Isaac demonstrated the genuineness of his faith. James follows this statement by quoting Genesis 15:6, where God credits Abram as righteous. This event happened many years before the offering up of Isaac, showing that Abram was already saved by his faith in God before this event happened. What James is questioning is whether a believer's faith is active or dead. There can be an apparent faith that is dead and does not save. We can't go through life believing that since righteous works are not operational for salvation, that they're not necessary at all. 1 John 3.7 tells us, He who practice, practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. If we are made righteous by our faith in Jesus, which we read earlier in Romans 3.22, it will be seen in our righteous lives. Carrying out works is external evidence of our faith. Faith without works is not a genuine saving faith. Salvation is determined by faith alone and demonstrated by the faithfulness to obey God's will alone. Ultimately, our faith leads to works that obey God's commands. The writer of Hebrews provides a number of examples using prominent Old Testament people and events to show that who, those who believed in God carried out God's plan through their faith. Let's look a few of these in Hebrews chapter 11. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. I'm going to kind of skip some verses in between, but try to summarize um, each person that's being discussed here. So in verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed going out to a place which he was to receive an inheritance. For he went out, not knowing where he was going. Jumping down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Down to verse 28. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Down to verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Our works are our sign of our active faith. They do not save us, but as James says, faith without works is dead. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are prepared in his work, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, one might think that this, this is a new revelation by Paul in the New Testament, but God spoke similarly in the Old Testament. Over 500 years before Paul, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 26, verse 12, You, being God, have also performed for us all our works. Even our good works are not our own. God has prepared them for us, for us to carry them out. If God had already prepared these works for us, how can we claim them as our own and use them for salvation? Scripture continually refutes that works save a person, but we are called to carry them out as followers of Jesus. Paul gives this reminder to Titus in Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. So starting in verse 1, it reads, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal salvation. Works of righteousness don't save. Saying a prayer doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. Attending church doesn't save. Instead, God, according to his mercy, saved us. Paul continues in verse 8, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These, are the th these, are, these things are good and profitable for men. God is the initiator in our salvation. We receive from him before we give anything back. Our hard work and good deeds never put God in a place where he owes us something. We give back out of gratitude for what God has already done for us. This is also a reminder of what we are saved for, to carry out good works. Looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul provides instructions and clarification regarding salvation and good works. This, starting in verse 12, it reads, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In verse 12, the Greek word rendered work out means to continually doing something to fulfillment or completion. It cannot refer to salvation by works, but it does refer to the believer's responsibility for active pursuit of obedience in the process of sanctification. Although the believer is responsible to work, Paul says God produces these good works in the lives of believers. This is accomplished because he works through us by his indwelling Holy Spirit. The word will used in verse 13 means studied intent to fulfill a planned purpose. God wants us to do what satisfies him, what gives him good pleasure. God's work in us, our justification and sanctification, increases our responsibility. We have a responsibility to work diligently. In wrapping up our time together this morning, I'd like to read from two passages, one from Peter and one from Paul. First, we'll look at 2 Peter in chapter 1, verse 5. So if I said 1 Peter, I meant 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. And in verse 5, Peter tells us, Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Applying all diligence means making maximum effort. God calls us to make a disciplined effort alongside what he has already accomplished. The word supply is to give lavishly and generously. God has supplied us this faith which gives us all we need to live out these lives of godliness. It is through faith that we gain personal righteousness and a love for others. As a final bit of instruction and encouragement, we'll flip over to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. So in this chapter, we find Paul spelling out the expected behavior for every Christian. Starting in verse 25, it reads, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give, us the, devil, not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but he, rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who is in need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So even this long passage, we can sum it up in a few phrases. Christians are to speak the truth. Christians are to control their temper. Christians labor with honesty. Christians control their tongues. Christians don't grieve the Holy Spirit that lives inside of them. Christians control their emotions and forgive one another. 
A pastor, when preaching through the book of Ephesians, said this, The point of Paul's words are not to teach a behavioral list in order to achieve salvation. Paul has already clearly taught that salvation is of the Lord and that it is not earned by man's work. However, in this passage, Paul is driving home the point that Christians should be clearly distinguished from the world. In other words, Christians should love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. We should be distinguishable from the world. We should stand out in a world of unbelievers, going against the grain and carrying out the plans and purposes of God. David sums all this up simply in Psalm 37.3, where he says, Trust in the Lord and do good.